the bread from heaven in which you must eat is my flesh and my blood. That is the true bread from heaven. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood shall receive eternal life. Now by this point, the Israelites are freaked out. They're like, what is this guy talking about? What? We have to eat his flesh, drink his blood. Today we're going to be discussing chapter 5 uh, of the Goal of the Wise, which deals with the fifth covenant, and that was the Jesuit covenant, God's covenant with Jesus the Messiah. And so we had spoken previously about how God had established a covenant with one family, and that family was the family of Adam and the descendants of Adam all the way till the Savior Noah uh, were upon the first covenant. Then Noah came, he's on the second. The same family, a descendant from Noah, a descendant from Adam comes and God establishes with him a third covenant when the second covenant's broken and that's Abraham. And after Abraham came Moses who's a descendant of Abraham and one of the children of Israel. So God has this covenant that's ongoing with this particular line. And it's the line from Adam all the way down to Moses, all the way down through the children of Israel, but through the line of Isaac. Now, the fifth covenant is extremely important because although there is a lot that is similar to what happened with the previous covenants, there's a lot that's different. And so, as always happens, um, Joshua enters into the Promised Land after the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant that we spoke about in the last episode. Um, David rules in Israel. Israel sees many kings that come into power, but Israel goes astray. They are led off of the right path. Many trials and tribulations happen, and injustice is spread all over the place. Inequity is spread all over the place. The Israelites... Uh, began to worship, the Torah says, foreign gods. And they split the country of Israel into two warring factions, uh, the north and the south. And this was after uh, Solomon, peace be upon him. Um, Israel split up and they began to war against one another. Uh, 
we had the north and we had the south. And um, God sent punishments upon them and they lost the Ark of the Covenant and they lost uh, the relics of the prophets and the messengers and they were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and they were taken in as slaves once again. And every time that God would forgive them and he would send a messenger, uh, they would believe for a while and then they would betray God's trust once again. And they, they began to transgress against God so much so that they began to actually kill and murder their prophets and their messengers. The Israelites have, had gone so astray and so dark and so against God that now every time they had a messenger sent to them, they wouldn't just disbelieve in them, but they would do exactly what the Canaanites had done to them before and to the prophets of their forefathers. Now we had a situation in, in this covenant, the fourth covenant, that the Adamites, the circumcised people, the chosen people of God, the children of Israel began to murder their own kind and to murder the messengers of God, just like the Canaanites were doing. And so they killed Zechariah, the prophet, and they were sent John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah. And John the Baptist was swiftly beheaded by an Israelite king who was on the throne, who was not appointed by God. And finally, there came to them the final messenger who was sent to the children of Israel, their Savior that was promised to them, the Messiah who was mentioned in the will of Moses by name and who was foretold to come to them, and that is Jesus. Peace be upon him. Jesus' call started when he was at the age of 30, uh, right after the death of and the arrest of John the Baptist, Jesus comes forward and he begins to preach. And his ministry only lasts three years. And, and to establish the greatest proof upon these Israelites whom are murdering every single prophet and messenger, Jesus comes forward and he claims to be he who was mentioned on the tongue of Isaiah. And he claims to be the one who was in the will of Moses. And he demonstrates great knowledge. And he's able to defeat the Pharisees and the non-working scholars in every single debate. One only has to open up the New Testament and see time after time after time that Jesus leaves the scholars of that time speechless, thus proving that he was the most knowledgeable. And he called towards the supremacy of God. He was anti the establishment. He was anti the invaders, the Roman Empire, Caesar. And he was also anti the, um, the scholars and the false kings of Jerusalem, the ones who had uh, beheaded uh, John the Baptist. 
And he himself was claiming to be the Messiah. And the Messiah was, was the divinely appointed king whom would rule only by God's way, whom uh, the children of Israel were waiting for. But God also sent Jesus as the prophet or messenger that performed the greatest amount of miracles out of all of the prophets and messengers that had ever been sent by him. Jesus is recorded as having healed people, healed the leper, healed the blind, healed the deaf, healed the mute. He's recorded as having walked on water, as having turned water into wine. He's recorded as having raised people from the dead. So Jesus left the Israelites with no excuse whatsoever to disbelieve. And yet the Israelites did disbelieve. And they plotted after the betrayal of Judas Iscariot to murder this great prophet who was named the Spirit of God, Jesus the Messiah. And they arrested Jesus, and in the apparent, they killed him. They crucified him, thus murdering their own Savior. And this is what is particularly new about this covenant and about this time. The breaking of the fourth covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was a catastrophe because it broke with the plot to murder and the crucifixion of the promised Savior. But not at the hands of the Canaanites, but at the hands of the Israelites. The sons of Adam themselves, they killed him. And so... The covenant was broken. The Israelites themselves had broken the covenant. And a fifth covenant was established. Fifth covenant was established in, those, in that final time period before Jesus' crucifixion, when he knew that his betrayal was already impending and that it was going to happen. Jesus began to uh, gather his disciples and give them the teachings of the new covenant and the new laws that would accompany the new covenant. And as with every covenant, there's a new sign. The first covenant we had mentioned, the sign of it was the tree. The second covenant, the sign of it was the rainbow. The third covenant, the sign, God said, was the circumcision. The fourth covenant, it was the Sabbath. God told Moses and the Israelites, I'm going to give you the Sabbath as a sign. And that is nobody is to worship, uh, nobody is to work on the Sabbath. They shall rest only. Unlike any other nation that has ever come before. And that will be the distinguishing factor between you guys, the Adamites, and between anybody else. God gives the fifth covenant a new sign and its sign is communion. This holy meal, this holy act 
that took place between Jesus and his disciples at the final supper before he was to be taken off and to be crucified. And in that time period leading up, Jesus also begun to lay out the new laws of the new covenant. So he made changes. As there was, was always additions or subtractions from the laws, the jurisprudence once again changes with Jesus. And so one of the things that Jesus did was that he demonstrated that the, the Sabbath was to no longer be observed. And it was something that the non-working scholars were attacking him for, in which he brought forward in the Gospels the story of David and his soldiers. Jesus also made marriage an institution, which is between one man and one woman only, and he outlawed divorce. And he said, uh, let no man separate what God has brought together. And when the Israelites said, oh, but in the law of Moses, meaning the covenant, the, the fourth covenant, Moses allowed divorce. And so Jesus says something extremely important to them. He says, Moses allowed divorce only because your hearts were, hard, were hardened. And so the implication was that Jesus said to them, was that I'm actually not changing the law, but rather I'm subtracting from the law what Moses only allowed because of you. And so Jesus makes this very important revelation that there is the law of God, but there are also these other rules, these other regulations, these other laws that are not really from God, but rather from man. And they're tolerated by God. So when they say, but it was part of Moses' law, divorce, Jesus says it was never part of Moses' law. But actually Moses tolerated and allowed divorce because of you people. Because you guys had the heart to be divorced. And so somebody might say, but how is this the case? Is it really the case that a prophet or a messenger would allow in the law things from his own self? And the answer is absolutely. And the proof is in the Quran. God, in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, states clear laws that the Muslims must do and must not do. He mentions them. Do not take the orphan's property. Do not marry your aunts. Do not do this. Do not do that. But he also says in the Quran, and whatever the Prophet gives you, take it. And whatever he forbids you from, leave it. So in addition to the laws that come from God, God gives the Messenger authority to add laws or allow things 
that are necessary for the time in which he is bringing down this revelation. And so divorce was allowed, not as a divine commandment from God, but as one of those things that Moses allowed, because he was the messenger, and the Quran says, and what the messenger gives you, take. And what he forbids you from, leave. And thus, by proxy, it becomes one of those laws from God that one must abide by. Is that clear? Yes. yes. And also, Jesus nullified some of the rituals and some of the laws that had to do with the purity or the purification of certain foods in which they would eat. He nullified it. He said to his disciples, he said to the scholars, he said, it's not the food which enters through your mouths that causes a person to become impure, but rather it's what comes out of the mouth of the son of Adam that causes him to be impure. And the Christians understand this verse as Jesus nullifying many of the laws and the rituals that have to do with food from the previous covenant. And indeed, it was the case. And there's an additional proof in the Quran which shows us that not all of the laws, all of these hundreds of laws that the Israelites had in the fourth covenant were obligatory upon them, but rather, or were directly from God, but rather a lot of them were adopted because they themselves requested or wanted or needed these laws because of, um, you know, the way they were, the way they were used to uh, life in ancient Egypt. The verse from the Quran says, and all food was permissible for the children of Israel, except for that which the children of Israel made impermissible on their own selves. And thus, Jesus nullified some of these impermissible foods that Israel made impermissible on their own selves and reinstated the origin, which was in the previous covenants, and that was that all food was permissible for the, the children of Adam and the children of Noah. And so these are radical points and very extremely important points and differences that are uh, taking place between the fifth covenant and previous covenants. Jesus, a great prophet, the awaited Messiah who comes to them, he's performing all of these miracles. He's fulfilling the scripture. He's doing everything that people would expect a Messiah to do. He's like, he has like superhero powers. Why would nobody believe in him? Why would people reject Jesus? 
why would the Israelites, even though they see all of these miracles being performed, choose to crucify him? What could be the reason? How come his call, his ministry, only lasted three years? And that's when we have to zoom into the events that took place uh, in the final days, in the final months of the call and the ministry of Jesus. And it all has to do with a speech, a sermon, which Jesus gave to the people at Capernaum. Jesus, as he's going from town to town, from city to city, from place to place, he's preaching, he's healing, he's walking on water, he's raising the dead. His numbers are increasing drastically. The Pharisees are hearing about him. The king is hearing about him. He's feeding thousands of people with food that just automatically multiplies. It goes from him giving sermons to a couple, uh, a couple dozen people, to a couple hundred people, Till by the end of his ministry, he's giving sermons to thousands upon thousands of people. Massive crowds. And so in one of these sermons, he's talking to the people. And he says to them, because they asked him for a sign. They said, they said, Jesus, Moses was given, Moses was given the holy bread, the manna from heaven. What sign will you give us in order that we believe in you? Jesus said to them, what Moses gave you was not true bread from heaven, but what I shall give you is the true bread from heaven. What my Father has given you is the true bread from heaven. And so the people were confused. What is he talking about? What does he mean that God will give him the, give us the true bread from heaven? What are you talking about, Jesus? And then Jesus reveals. He says, I am the true bread of heaven. And the people are still confused. They don't understand. What is he talking about? God will give us the true bread of heaven. Jesus is he's saying he's the bread of heaven. What does that mean? Is he saying that he's from heaven and he came down? Or what is he talking about? Jesus clarifies further. He says, no. The bread from heaven in which you must eat is my flesh and my blood. That is the true bread from heaven. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood shall receive eternal life. Now, by this point, the Israelites are freaked out. They're like, what is this guy talking about? What? 
We have to eat his flesh, drink his blood. And in apparent disgust, they all withdraw themselves. Jesus' crowd becomes very few that are left. He goes to his disciples, and his disciples are objecting to him. Even his closest companions are saying to him, Jesus, how hard is this teaching? Who can handle that? That's what, says, what it says in the Gospels. Who can handle that? And so it becomes clear that this flesh in which the people must eat and the blood in which the people must drink is not just an allegory for the words of Jesus. For if it was just talking about the words of Jesus, then <coughs> why would the disciples object? Why would the people feel disgust? There must be a greater reason. There must be something else that is meant by this. So now we seek to understand what is this secret meaning of consuming the flesh and blood of Jesus that is not so secret that the Israelites understood it, but that we here now don't understand. When we look in the Oxford Bible, we find that there is this very odd incident that takes place, which we must mention in order to understand what is to come, in the time of Moses. Moses apparently does not circumcise his child. And Moses is told by God to go confront Pharaoh. And it says that as Moses is on the way, he stops at a hotel, at a, at a place to spend the night. And it is there that God attempts to kill Moses. And so the wife of Moses, Zipporah, immediately she knows what the reason is. And she grabs the son of Moses and she circumcises him. And she takes the flesh from the circumcision and she touches with it the feet of Moses. And we automatically assume that, you know, she just took the flesh from the circumcised child and she knelt down and touched the feet of Moses. Except that it says feet at the very bottom of the page. It says feet is a euphemism which means genitals. So now we understand that in ancient times, in the time of the Torah, in the time of Moses and the prophets and the messengers who were after Moses, in the time of the fourth covenant between Moses and Jesus in Israel, whenever somebody said, Feet, they meant by it, and it was very understood, and it was a common reference, euphemism, a polite way of saying genitals. 
just like today, we will say something like, you know, uh, he kicked him in his behind. And we use behind to reference an area in a polite way. We don't want to say his uh, bottom, so we say his behind, instead of using the impolite word for it. So the Jews, they revered God, they had morals and manners, they didn't want to reference this area directly, so they stated by it, feet. And it is obvious because in other parts of the Bible, this, this same word is used to describe <coughs> genitals or the private area. There's an incident in the Bible in which Saul is using the bathroom. And so it states on there, and Saul uncovered his feet in a reference to that. You come to the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, in which the mother-in-law commands her daughter-in-law to go down to Boaz because she's trying to find a husband for her. And she says, go lie down at his feet. Uncover his feet and lie down at it, she tells her. It's a clear reference of the genital area of the man. Most importantly, in the story of David and Uriah, when David was trying to command Uriah to go down and sleep with his wife, what did he say? He said, go down and wash your feet. For wash your feet was a euphemism for sleep with your wife. Wash your feet by entering upon your wife. And all scholars um, agree that that is what was meant when David told Uriah to go and wash his feet. It was not meant that he would physically wash his feet, but rather he would go sleep with his with his wife. Now, when we look in some of the texts of the scholars to understand what the meaning was, just like we have this as a euphemism, what is the meaning of a man's flesh or a man's blood? What is the meaning of that? We find that they write and they said that flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood, is my seed, is my son, is my descendant, is my sperm. The sperm, sperm was commonly referenced to in ancient times as the flesh or the blood of the man. For the flesh or the blood of the man is preserved or kept in his seed, in his sperm. And so then we have 
to look at the story of Jesus with this understanding. And what we find is a few disturbing stories or enlightening stories once we knew, know the meaning of this key, the meaning of these euphemisms. We find that Jesus is constantly referring to himself as the bridegroom. The bridegroom is the person who's going to get married to the bride. He's there's a few incidents in which Jesus is talking to people and he begins to discuss or refer to odd things. In one such example, he walks upon a well. It was a well that had been dug up by Jacob. And there was a woman, a, a Samaritan woman, a woman from Samaria, who was getting water out of the well. And in this famous incident, Jesus is standing there. And he's looking at the woman. And he asks her, why are you not offering me any water? And she says, because you're a Jew. And I'm a woman from Samaria. And I didn't think that the likes of you would drink from the likes of me. Because the Jews used to consider them impure. Then Jesus tells her, rather, it should be you who is asking from me for a drink. For I can give you a drink of the living waters. You just have access to normal waters. Water that when you drink from, eventually you are thirsty again. But I have water that's alive. Water that people who drink from it are never thirsty again. And then she begins to ask him, what are you talking about? What are these living waters? And where can I find them? And Jesus tells her, go fetch your husband and I'll show you. And then the story ends at that. Well, everybody knows that living waters is a word that can be given to sperm. And if living waters was to refer to the word, well, then he would have just given her the word. But yeah, he said, go get your husband. Another strange incident that takes place is an incident in which he is invited to the house of a scholar for dinner. And he goes to the house. The scholar walks out for a moment. He goes into the other room. All of a sudden, a woman who's, who's known to be a prostitute in the area, she enters in upon Jesus. And it says that she falls down at Jesus' feet and begins to perfume it and begins to kiss it, his feet. 
Well, for any Jew who was living at that time, these verses, this story, the description of this story is clear. The scholar walks back in. He finds this woman kissing the feet of Jesus and washing the feet of Jesus with her hair. Her hair is on the feet of Jesus. He's shocked. He's horrified. He's disgusted. He says, how can Jesus be from God if he's allowing an impure creature like that to kiss his feet and to put her hair on his feet? Well, if we were talking about physical feet, the normal feet that we know here in, in this year, then why would he be horrified? Why would a scholar be so heartless that he would object to a woman who's a sinner prostrating down and kissing the physical feet with toes of Jesus if she believes him to be the Messiah or believes him to be a prophet or messenger from God? No scholar would object to that. In fact, we find the scholars in those times and in these times, constantly having people kissing their hands, let alone their feet. And he wasn't upset because, for the sake of the woman, he was upset for the sake of Jesus because she was impure. But he would object, and it would make sense that he object if it was in the other context. And the relationship in which Jesus was engaging with this woman was, was one of the other kind. Then of course he would be horrified. And of course it would make sense that he say, how can he engage with a woman who is impure like this? For it is only appropriate for a prophet or somebody from God to be with a woman of high faith. A woman who's a virgin, a woman of high stature. And then we come to perhaps the most disturbing story of them all. And that is the event that takes place right before the arrest of Jesus Christ. And that is the final supper, the last supper between Jesus and his companions. The supper which is mentioned in the Quran and a whole surah, one of the longest surahs in the Quran, Surah Al-Ma'idah, the widespread table is named after this event. In which the verses of the Quran narrate that the disciples were begging Jesus to grant them food from the heavens. The same food from the heavens as he was talking about and preaching to the people about. So it seems like now when we put these stories together, Jesus is preaching to the people. They can't handle it. They're apostating. They're, they're, they're moving away. They're, they're running away. 
Only few are left. Even then the disciples have weak faith. They're objecting. Oh, who can, who can handle this? But it seems by the time the Last Supper came around, some of them, or all of them, really wanted to eat from this, this, this widespread table. In the Quran, Jesus says to them that God says that he will bring down the table from the heavens. But if you disbelieve after that, so Jesus is reluctant at first, but then he finally accepts to ask God. God commands. He says, okay, Jesus, feed them from, from that food. I'm going to bring down the widespread table. He says, but if they disbelieve after that, verily I will punish them with a punishment as, they had, as, as I have never punished anyone before. So it was a very serious matter. The table and the contents of the table was not just some words to be spoken, but rather it was a food that was so dangerous that it would require a punishment to befall them if they disbelieved after that like no other. A punishment worse than Pharaoh, a punishment worse than Nimrod, a punishment worse than Cain, a punishment worse than anybody. And so the table came down. Now, oddly enough, in the Gospels, we have the, the New Testament. It consists basically of four Gospels, four, four, four accounts, four testimonies to the life and times of Jesus Christ. And then the letters and the writings of Paul. When we leave the writings and the letters of Paul, we put it on the side and we focus on these testimonies, these accounts of the life of Jesus. We find that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention anything about the Last Supper and the incident of the washing of the feet. But John, who the disciple whom Jesus loved the most is also called John. In his gospel, he is the only one who mentions him. So it seems now, and it becomes clear, that this incident which was narrated by John and left out by the three other gospels was an incident that they didn't want to talk about. Only John wanted to talk about, or only John had the guts to talk about. The rest of them didn't want to mention it. It was a sacred, it was a private, it was a, a thing that they didn't feel necessary to speak about. And so what does John mention? He mentions that Jesus tells his disciples, are you ready? They say yes. He walks up to Simon Peter. Jesus takes off his shirt. Jesus wraps a towel around his waist. He's standing there with a towel around his waist. And he informs Simon Peter that he is going to wash his feet. 
Simon Peter's horrified. Simon Peter objects. Simon Peter says, no, I can't, I will not, I cannot allow. Jesus insists. Tells him it's the only way. He will not go to heaven unless now we proceed. And so they proceed. Now, if we take washing feet in this incident and in the other two incidents in Jesus' life and say that there is no reason why, if the washing of feet meant in the story of David and Uriah as having sex or sleeping with, or the uncovering of feet, meaning the uncovering of the genitals, or the touching of feet, meaning the touching of genitals, if we assume that the same meeting for these Jews in the time of Jesus meant the same in the time of Moses and, and, and David and Samuel and beyond, well, then it becomes clear what happened at the final supper. And it became clear what was the flesh and the blood of Christ in which the disciples consumed, which filled them up with the Holy Spirit, what these living waters were that the disciples had drunk from. It is the water, the seed of the Messiah. Now, this story is horrifying to many people. And I know that many people are going to be extremely angry, confused. Many people will mock. Many people will deny. Many people will curse, as they did Jesus. Many people will walk away, as they did with Jesus. But Imam Ali said, Verily, most of the truth is in that which you deny. And Jesus, peace be upon him, said, Search for the truth, and when you find the truth, you shall be disturbed. And so the feeling of being disturbed should be a sign that we're closer to the truth and that we're on the right path. And we should never, ever, ever be afraid to examine and put all possibilities on the table and to question religion and to question everything until we're called disbelievers. For that is the only path towards the truth. And really, this whole new understanding of the Last Supper and that which the disciples partook in brings up a very important point, a very important question, which, is, which solves and helps us understand even further, and it serves as a greater proof for the conversation and the problem which we were dealing with in the fourth covenant. Because the question of the infants being commanded to be killed by prophets and messengers or by God 
really it brings up this whole question of is there something is there such a thing as absolute goodness and absolute evil is there something uh, such as absolute purity and absolute impurity is there inherent purity and inherent impurity or najasa and what falls into what well we find that we have certain animals or body parts of animals that as muslims muslims are they consider it and are taught that they are impure by nature so a pig is impure by nature the saliva of a dog is impure by nature the dog when it's born is just born like that it's liquid the liquid that comes out of its tongue is just impure so now we have something which if you accept that it's just it's impure by nature if that is the case then you have to ask yourself well its opposite must also exist there must be some things some fluids that are pure by nature if the if the uncircumcised man is worse than the dog if the seed of satan is worse the canaanites worse than the dog then that means that he's more impure than the dog and we find that also in the narrations of the anbiya alayhi salam and we find that in islam this belief that the disbeliever you know for the sunnis they consider many many sects of them they consider that the christian or the jew is just impure he's najis the non-believer the non-muslim is impure by nature unless he accepts islam then he becomes purified that's why they derive certain laws that you can rape the non-believing or the non-muslim uh, woman etc now i'm not saying that that's correct i'm just saying that this is the understanding they also consider that the shaitan is impure they can they consider that the nasibi is impure a person who hates muslims a person who fights against muslims if you shake their hands you have to wash your hands you have to make a ghusl because they're impure by nature right or wrong if a nasibi eats with his with his with his spoon with a fork or a a crip many of the pakistanis in the in the uk um if they have a guest over and he's a christian and he's eating from the fork or from the or from the spoon and not just pakistanis but muslims in general they consider that now it becomes impure and you were talking to me about that javed right with your family and people that you knew and so this understanding is there that disbelief and hatred for the faith for the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam for the family of the prophet equals to impure so inherent impurity exists dog pig nasibis inherent impurity exists so there has to be the opposite for jews they consider a woman who's on her period that that this woman if she touches things it becomes impure so therefore back in the days certain sects of judaism 
although they don't all do this now, but they used to have an outhouse where the woman would have to live in while she was in this state of impurity because anything that she touched, it would transfer that impurity from it to it. She could cause something to become impure, just like the pig could or the dog could by licking you. He would cause it to become impure. You'd have to wash. There has to be agents, liquids, individuals who are purifying. The opposite of that. People that if they touched you, liquids, fluids, that if it touched you, it purifies you. Just like these make you nauseous, these have to purify you. Right or wrong? Right. And so we find that this is exactly what is mentioned in the books of the Muslims. We find the story of a woman who is called Umm Ayman. Umm Ayman is a woman who's in the house of the Prophet and she's cleaning in his house and she finds a container. And this container had the urine of the Prophet Muhammad in it. And the hadith states that the Prophet came back to his room and he didn't find that container of urine anymore. And so he asked, what happened to it? And then it was revealed to him, or Umayman confessed, that she drank it. She found the urine of the Prophet. She said, what a blessing. And she took it and she said, Bismillah, and drank it. The Prophet's response to her was astonishing. He said, hellfire will never touch the belly of Umm Ayman. That means that Umm Ayman has now become pure by consuming the fluid, the urine of the Holy Prophet Muhammad And so Muslims believe that the sweat of the Prophet, the tears of the Prophet, the urine of the Prophet is pure. And certainly, the Shia believe that the seed of the Prophet, Muhammad's family, Fatima al-Zahra, al-Hasan and al-Hussein, and the Imams after that, those which came from his semen, from his seed, are pure. And God removed from them all impurity. Because they are what? The seed of the Prophet Muhammad So it's impossible that the urine of the Prophet Muhammad be, be, be an agent which purifies, but the semen of the Prophet Muhammad does not purify. So the urine, the semen, the sweat, the saliva, the entire being of the Prophet Muhammad and all prophets and messengers are extremely holy and are, are made 100% of, of, of light and are completely pure in them and of themselves. And anybody who is in contact with them would be purified. And we find that Jesus Christ himself, when he was performing many of these miracles, he was using bodily fluid. And it states it over and over again. 
there's a blind man. So Jesus goes and he spits in his eye. And the saliva from the mouth of Jesus causes the man who was once blind to see. Or he spits in the ground, mixes it with clay, and it becomes an animal that's alive. Or a body part which is now functioning. A severed ear or eye. And we find that up until the Last Supper, the disciples were able to do certain things, like cast out demons. But when they tried to do major things, like walking on water, they would sink. And Jesus would say to them, O ye of little faith. Right? But after the Last Supper, after they were in contact with Jesus, after they ate from the Holy Supper, from the communion, from the heaven, heavenly table, they became filled with the Spirit. Jesus was Ruh Allah. In His saliva is the light of God. In His urine would have been the light of everything. His whole being and everything that comes in the contact from Him is light. And Jesus demonstrated this in the scene of the transfiguration of Christ, in which he stands there and reveals that he's all light to his disciples. And so after becoming filled with the Spirit after this Last Supper, Simon Peter now, his, the mere casting of his shadow upon a sick person is enough that that sick person be healed. They're able to make wondrous miracles as a side effect of not just faith but, a, but in having partook in this most important communion in which they ate the flesh and the blood of Christ At the table, the table that was mentioned by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Holy Quran. And so this, the acceptance of Jesus, this world savior, this great world savior, and his controversial teachings and his lifting and changing of the jurisprudence which now the Jews had become so attached to led them that within a mere three years they crucified him in the apparent and the covenant changes God keeps his promise which he made to Abraham that I will make an everlasting covenant with you and your descendants. Abraham says, all my descendants, he says, not the wrongdoers. And the Israelites were wrongdoers. And they broke the covenant. And by killing their Savior, and by acting like the Canaanites, God turned His face from them like He did the Canaanites. And the covenant was changed and transferred 
and no other prophet or messenger would ever be sent, no other savior would ever be sent to the Bani Israel, to the children of Israel and the Jews again. And the covenant was transferred to the children of Ismail, who was also a son of Abraham. Fulfilling the word of God that from Ismail he shall make 12 princes. And climaxing in the sending forth of the Holy Prophet Muhammad And we'll talk about this in the coming covenant, in the sixth covenant. And for those who, who, who doubt that uh, this interpretation and this meaning of the Holy Supper is true, I argue with them and I say that not only is it true, but those who are at the top levels, those who are in the know in the Christian church, they know that it is the truth. And it's because they know that this is the truth, but they, and they have a twisted malpractice of it. This is what led to the molestation of so many children in the Catholic Church. Because those who are in the know are attempting to carry out these practices with young boys, which is an abomination. Until next time.